know exactly what you're trying to achieve. So many people in this world generally know what they want, but don't know exactly what they want. That if you can be that person that knows exactly what you're looking for, it is like a superpower. I can think of a number of, of examples of that, but knowing what you want, exactly what you want, asking for it will, will exponentially increase your, your effort. You're listening to Making It with John Davids. Before we get to today's episode, I want to ask you guys for a big favor. Go ahead and subscribe or follow wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a rating or review. It makes a big difference. It helps other people know about the show and it lets us know that we're doing something right. Okay, on to the show. We're live. Ben, thank you for joining me today. John, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So Ben Wilson, you've got a podcast that uh, came to my attention. I'm sure a lot of people uh, who listen to this show have also heard about it, How to Take Over the World. Um, and it's a... I guess... I mean, the title says it all. It's, it's really a podcast about people who have done amazing things. I've got a bunch of questions about it and a bunch of questions for you. Why don't you just give us a quick 30 seconds on kind of who you are and, and what the show is about? Yeah. So... Um... My background, I graduated in economics and political science, went into management consulting for a few years, did tech marketing for a few years. And then I started this, this sort of history podcast in my spare time. Um, and it, it, as you, you laid out perfectly exactly what it is. And so it is, uh, you know, it was my attempt to just, you know, I had been listening to Tim Ferriss show and I, there was a, a string of a few interviews that I was like, I don't really want to hear from these people. And so in my mind, this is like the Tim Ferriss interview of the people that I wish that he was interviewing, which is some of these, these great historical figures that are now dead and inaccessible to us. So, so hoping to open up their stories a little bit and, and hopefully uh, learn a few things from their lives. That's interesting. That, that's actually a really different origin story than what I thought you were going to say. You were actually hoping... So these are folks where if they were around today and they were on a podcast, th these are the stories that you'd love to hear. Yeah, that's exactly it, right? Of, um, I think it's, I've always been interested in that of like hearing from top performers and how they do what they do and how they train, how they think. And I just thought, like, oh, it's so sad that we can't have that. We can't have those interviews with these people that I love reading about in history because I've always been a little bit of a history nerd and a history buff. And so I, I kind of tried to fuse those two things together. Interesting. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a historical show, but I'll say two things. As someone I was telling you before the mic's heated up, I've listened to... I discovered it like two months ago and I've listened to every episode. <laughs> and, and it almost listens or reads like an audiobook in the sense that you're telling really interesting stories. Frankly, they could be, like, they could be made up. I mean, they, they are all real life stories, but they're really interesting. And they're all about figures who have done things that, you know, whether you whether they're political victories or military victories or financial victories, you have an interest in history, but particularly about people who have succeeded on a grand scale. Would that be right? Yeah, I, I guess uh, dig into whatever psychology you want there. You know, uh, people can psychoanalyze me any which way they want. But yeah, I, I do love those uh, those stories that are that are epic and play out on a, on a large scale. 
Yeah. So one thing I love to do on this on the show, and you're kind of the perfect guest to do this, is I love to dig into stories of success and kind of dissect and and really deconstruct success, figure out what makes this person or these people or this company successful. Um, and and there's a few people that you've profiled. Maybe we'll have time to get into one or two of them. Um, but a couple episodes I really enjoyed uh, were, of course, Napoleon, because he's kind of where every, at least in my case, where every kind of history, military person starts is kind of at Napoleon. <laughs> That's required reading. Um, and then you also profiled the Rothschild family, which I thought was super interesting. So I guess at a macro level, are there any themes that you find are similar among these kinds of people? Yes. Um, yes. And, and that is um, kind of one of the theories of the show, that there are certain strategies and tactics that uh, you you can find patterns you can find across many of these different stories that and and some of them are different like many of them are different in many different ways which is when then when you find one of those things that is common amongst many of them you say okay this must be really powerful because if they can be different in a lot of different ways then the ways in which they're similar there there must be something kind of kind of like a secret sauce there is kind of how I think about it. And did you notice that? So, like, if I'm I'm looking at the uh, at the Apple charts now, it looks like back in 2017 when you launched the show, it was Napoleon. You did Steve Jobs. I thought it, we'll we'll talk about Putin in a second, but you did two episodes on Vladimir Putin, which I thought were just phenomenal. Did did you notice right away that like, oh, Napoleon did this. Oh, Steve Jobs did also. Oh, I see this in others. Was it really apparent real quick? And and I'd love to hear if you can share a couple themes. Um, you know, so obviously, um, I didn't, I didn't know necessarily how much, how many similarities there would be between these various characters. Some of them you can go in and say, okay, Thomas Edison, Steve Jobs, like there's probably gonna be a couple similarities there, right. Of, uh, they're, you know, kind of inventor types, uh, or Caesar and Napoleon wouldn't surprise too many people that they had some similarities. Um, the ones that really interested me are when you find these similarities that go from Caesar to Napoleon to Steve Jobs to Thomas Edison to like to, to that connect people. And yes, so there are some. So the one that um, my fans make fun of me sometimes for obsessing a little bit about, but I had this like, uh, you, you know, the picture of the, the you got the crazy person with the cork board and you got the red string like connecting all these newspaper articles and pictures. Oh, yeah. So. That happened, uh, man, I'm trying to remember which episode it was. At a certain point, I realized that every single person I profiled was an extremely light eater and uh, that that people commented about it at the time, um, that they ate really quickly. They ate really light. um, They didn't seem to enjoy their meals much and they just kind of like plowed through them and food was almost an afterthought. And I was like, wow, this is so weird. I think, um, no, it couldn't have been Steve Jobs because he was so early. But, you know, so... Napoleon, um, you said, was a very light eater. I remember that. Yeah, so Napoleon was a very light eater. Steve Jobs was like notorious for always going on these weird diets where he would only eat apples. He was, he was a vegan for his entire life. Uh, and it, it was always notable for how little he ate. Thomas Edison would also go on weird diets where he would only drink milk. Napoleon has this quote of, if you want to eat well, eat with Camposeris. If you want to eat poorly, eat with LeBron. If you want to eat quickly, eat with me. Um, because he ate his dinner in less than 15 minutes and didn't eat very much. Uh, and I think uh, maybe it was Putin because it just blew my mind. Like, really? Come on. All these guys, like all these guys are light eaters. Um, and uh, 
but I was reading in a Putin biography, like, yeah, this guy eats extremely light. His breakfast is like a boiled egg or something like that. So, um, and obviously I think there's more to that than just the eating. I think it's emblematic, emblematic of something much larger that they share. It's interesting. So, so like I hear things like that. I hear light eater. I hear, you know, wake up super early. Um, you know, these days it's like take a nice bath and meditate and, you know, like whatever. I guess my question is, are the are these real cause and effects or are these more myth? Like, does waking up super early have anything to do with how much money you're gonna make? I mean, what if you wake up at eight o'clock but you're super productive? What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I do think um well, so like on the with, with when you go to bed and when you wake up, you know, that's one actually where you can see some variety, right? So Tom Edison was famous for he would stay up extremely late and he didn't wake up late in the day per se, but he didn't wake up early. Uh, he definitely didn't wake up early. You know, he wasn't, he wasn't getting to work until 9 a.m., um, a very normal time. Um, and so I do think there's a, I do think there's a lot of noise, especially if you only take a single data point, right? And I, that's why I think it's, it's, you got to be too, so, so another one, the example is uh, Steve Jobs, right? Steve Jobs, notoriously, a little bit of a prickly personality, could yell a little bit could um could be abrasive and so a lot of people have tried to copy that element of of steve jobs because they want to they want to be like him right they want to be this great leader they want to be this great executive and and innovator well you know it's interesting in reading the story of walt disney which is the one i'm working on right now they shared so many common attributes right and it is spooky. Almost you read these things that Walt Disney said and you're like, whoa, that's weird because I could hear the, the one that freaked me out is uh, they were inventing cartoons with, with sound and they're playing the cartoons and people are going wild for them. It's the first time anyone has listened to a cartoon with sound and um, they're playing them for like six hours straight. And so finally a couple people like uh, of the, of his employees leave the room and like they've been, they've been at it for six hours and he goes out there and he's, and they're just kind of chatting about life outside of this theater. And he says, what are you guys doing? Are you going to stand out here talking about babies? Or are you going to come inside and change the world? And he was like, Whoa, I could, I could hear Steve Jobs saying that exact sentence. So they're so similar in so many ways, but Walt Disney was not prickly. Like, um, like Steve Jobs was, he was just, he just went about it a different way. He didn't have this abrasive personality. And so it makes you realize like, Oh, then are, uh, maybe some of these people were being jerks for no reason. Like maybe you didn't need to copy that element of Steve Jobs' personality. Maybe you could have been nice about it um, and, and still been and taken other lessons from him. Yeah. And that's an interesting one because that reminds me of, you know, the Machiavelli principle. It's like, you know, Machiavelli says all these kinds of things. It's better to be feared than loved. I think, or I think, I think, I think that was Machiavelli. But not to be hated. Yeah, that's right. Not to be hated. Yeah. So, um, you know, the idea of sort of being rough, being prickly, being a bully, that's one of those things where it's like, you can be a bully and get things done, but you might be able to get things done without being a bully also. Um, and so copying that attribute, as you said, it's like the single data point. Yeah, but that's not the relevant data point. And so, yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing that pe people want to copy. Um, so a couple others that, that caught my attention. Uh, I think this was in the I don't know if this was in the Disney episode or, or another one, but you talked about intense 
attention. You might have worded it differently, but this idea that when someone is talking to you, when you're in a conversation, you are intensely focused on them. Did you see that a lot? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, the two I can think of, the three I can think of that did that is Steve Jobs, Walt Disney, Vladimir Putin. And it was funny to me that people always describe it the same way of they focus their whole attention on you. And it's like, uh, people always describe it as it seemed like you were the only person in the world to them in that moment. Uh, that, and, and it made them very charming. People were very charmed by them when they had conversations in this way. So those were the three, but, but I also noted that I, I found that, um, people have described it that exact way when talking about, uh, I've heard people talk, describe Donald Trump that way. Um, and Saddam Hussein. And so it's like all these, like, you know, um, you can think whatever you want about Saddam, very charismatic leader, obviously. So, um, yeah, I think that is a, a common way to, to draw someone in and capture their attention. Yeah. When I look at these people and I think about, so what are the attributes that actually made a difference? I would say the intense attention for sure. And then the other one, and maybe you've talked about this or not, but the idea of charisma, I think, is actually incredibly valuable because if you can't um, sort of bring people to follow you without any incentive, you're not paying them, you're not their friend, you don't have a, an established relationship, but this ability to make people follow you in very large crowds, so you're not having one-on-one -on -one conversations necessarily, and they're following you almost like there's no other way to go. Like, yeah, this is this is the one we're going to go with. That's got to be uh, a very powerful trait. What would you say? Charisma is almost like magic. It is one of those things. It's one of those things that moves history and it's very hard to put your finger on, very hard to define. But yes, this ability to make people sort of just naturally follow, not only follow you, but want to follow you is this, uh, is this incredible talent and ability that that's... And there are things you can learn about it while at the same time, it does seem like a little bit of magic. Was there anybody that you've studied that did not have charisma? Uh, so I would say that Vladimir Putin is actually on the lower end of what I would call a naturally charismatic person. He is not a character like, like Donald Trump, right? He's not a character like Steve Jobs. He doesn't have that natural charisma. I'm trying to think if there's anyone else. I mean, it is it is very common for for people who achieve a lot to be very charismatic. There are ways to figure it out if that's not something that comes naturally to you. Let's let's stay on Putin for a second because this is probably one of the most fascinating episodes of How to Take Over the World that I listened to. So the idea, I'll sum it up, and you can put some color on it. But Vladimir Putin, really, until the age of I think mid 40s, is is not any kind of big deal. Uh, he's a government worker. He had other jobs. Uh, you, can, you can fill us in. But essentially, at the age of around 44, 45, he ascends to the height of political power in Russia. So my question about that, and, and this is sort of more broad as well, how certain what is a story like that to happen? I mean, could you have seen him not ascending just as easily or maybe a much more likely outcome is that he never ascends? Or do you think that there was some preordained like, no, it was going to happen because he kept doing this right? Uh, so there's this moment that when you talk about in the middle of his life where the guy who's working for his name is Sobchak, he was the mayor of St. Petersburg and he loses re-election. And Putin... Is like, oh, what do I do now? And he's about to go become a judo teacher. He's going to open a, a judo uh, gym 
in St. Petersburg. And like, yes, if that happens, uh, everything's different. Nothing happened. You know, Vladimir Putin is a footnote in history. No one's ever heard of him. Instead, someone says, hey, why don't you come serve? And he's like literally over facilities in Moscow, like kind of bottom rung of the Russian government in Moscow. So it's one of those things where, yes, so there's that element of luck. He just lucks into this. But then there's a reason that he rises extremely quickly from being the facilities manager to being the president and then like kind of the almost more than a president. He's, he's uh, I think dictator is maybe overstating it, but obviously he has enormous power over Russia right now. And for him, that superpower is kind of like this, this consistency and this like knowing who it is that he um, represents and supports and just unequivocally and unabashedly speaking out in their favor all the time, if that makes sense. So let's, let's dig into that for a second. At what point, and just to set the context for the listener, um, correct me if I'm wrong, he was like 44 uh, when this happened, when, when he ascended to that position-ish? He, he's in his 40s. Yes. He's in his 40s. Okay. So something like that. So up until then, he, as you said, if he had just stayed at that level, he would have been a footnote in history. At what point does he consciously make a pivot in his brain to say, oh, if I keep doing this, I'm going to keep ascending? Or does he ever do that? I guess what I'm trying to get at, Ben, is at what point, and we'll talk about Julius Caesar and some of the others in a second, but do people at this level ever stumble into that level of success or is that not going to happen? Yeah, there is. Um, now, now, people debate this very widely about Putin because the fact of the matter is in his previous career, he had been a KGB officer. He had been a, a spy. So some people see in Putin's life this grand master plan, right? Of, well, the real reason he got brought into Moscow and had this rapid rise was the FSB, which is the successor organization to the, K- to the KGB. He was their inside man and they wanted him to, um, they needed an inside guy. So he was their inside guy. And but, but I think that ignores a lot. Uh, it ignores the fact that he wasn't ever particularly high at the KGB. Like, yes, he was a KGB officer, but it's not like he was in the inner circle um, or anything like that. So I don't really see him as a plant or anything like that. I, I'm sorry, what was the question? So I, I, what I'm wondering is, and we can talk about Putin or some others, but are people, how far in advance are you thinking... Uh-oh about, oh, I'm going to keep going at this level? Or did Putin kind of get there without ever really aiming to get there? That's right. So I do. And so I do see his story is almost unique in this way of usually what you have is a match of the moment and the personality of like an oversized moment, an oversized personality, right? Like the Roman Republic was waiting for someone like Caesar. And then there was Caesar (laughs) who was this like larger than life personality with Putin. It's almost like he had to rise to the occasion to fill the moment. Like he wasn't naturally that kind of person who was going to seize the bull by the the horns and bend history to, um, to, to shape what, to fit what he wanted to do. That wasn't him at all. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it was 
you know, essentially Yeltsin is president and he becomes his uh, head of, of security or something like that. And I think that's at the point where he realizes like, oh, I could become the president. But really, it's still even Yeltsin who comes on TV and says like, and now Putin's going to be your president, like makes his big introduction. So more than, and it's, so the question is, this guy Putin who kind of falls into this role in history, how often does this happen? And my sense is on the scale that it's happening for Putin, not very frequently. Like this is, a, I think, a, a pretty unique story, uh, yeah. at least from the ones that I've studied. So it, 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 it makes me think a lot because one of the things I, I talk about, so when you're talking about success and thinking about whether it's in your career and sort of bringing it back to, to, to the micro, to the listener who's building their business or, or trying to exceed, uh, excel in their career, um, I think about this concept of proximity to successful people. You know, if you're close to people who are successful, you will, for a number of reasons, probably increase your likelihood of success. And that's because you potentially are opened up to their network, you're opened up to their connections, you're opened up to their way of thinking. And and then also, you know, in the in the Putin story, so as you just described, he became, I think it was head of security for for Yeltsin, might might have been something else. But the proximity to power puts you in a position. It's no different than you know working at the mailroom at, at William Morris. You're you're that much closer to the Hollywood um, uh, power players, and so getting yourself in the door in a lowly position, I think, is a common theme I see for people that eventually rise up. But you've got to do it with intention, and you've got to do it with the idea of okay, I'm going to start here. Uh, this isn't my end goal, but getting in the door is a much, much better way to do it. It's like, I'm going to go be employee number eight at a startup that I think is going to a billion rather than going to start my own thing. Yeah, I'm number one here, but I'd rather be number eight there. Uh, I, I, and I'm thinking that's that's something that is probably prevalent through a lot of these success stories. I think the best example of exactly what you're saying is um, Mayor Rothschild. And so he did not come from money. And he actually started out, um, you know, this is late 18th century, early 19th century. And at the time, it, the nobility of Europe, what they loved to do, one of the, their big hobbies that was, was popular in Europe at the time was to collect metals and coins, rare metals and coins. And so he becomes a metal and coin vendor and he goes to these these barons and these dukes and he creates this incredible this beautiful catalog and uh it lists all the metals and coins available and he gives them really good prices he's giving him deals but just like you said he always knows this is not what i want to do i actually want to be their banker i want to be managing their money but not only is he meeting them but how is he meeting them he's meeting them in a context where they get to see okay this guy very honest deals with me fairly gives me good prices like has his stuff together, knows what he's talking about, competent. Like he gets to show off in a very small scale, all the stuff that he can do so that when a few years later he says, well, how about actually giving me a, a piece of your money to invest for you? They say, okay, well, you did a good job with this little, you know, with these little metals and baubles, then sure. Why not? So yes, that is a common theme. And it's just like you said, it's not just rubbing elbows with them, but it's, it's how do you have the, the ability? Do you have the opportunity to show off that you're a competent person. Yeah, it's 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 putting yourself in a position to do something to provide value in a way that is very low risk or it could be no risk 
to a party that can help you at some point down the line. It's no different than interning or you know having a low-level job at a real estate firm. And then you can leverage that to maybe run that real estate firm or another at a certain point, but you're not asking to go in on day one and handle the money and, and, do, the, and do the development yourself. Uh, I think proximity and getting as close as you can. And listen, we've also seen this with Warren Buffett. You know, he went to Benjamin Graham and was like, I, I, you know, I want to, I want to learn from you. I want to, want to, I want to be a part of this. Um, and we see it across the board. People want to get close to those that can help them get to the next level, but they do it in a way that provides value and doesn't ask for anything in return directly. Yeah. And that's a mistake I see a lot of people make is they try and get access to people who are where they want to go and they're immediately asking for them for things rather than providing them things. Um, and people will want to help you out. So I had someone reach out to me the other day. I have a lot of people reach out to me, but this person, uh, so they sent me a website. They had bought like uh, Ben Wilson's first million.com or something like that. <laughs> and they were, they were like, Hey, I put together a website with all these ideas of how you could monetize your podcast. And I'd love to help you with it. And I was like, cool. Well, guess what? I, I am going to read everything you wrote. And if you, if we want to work together, then he has a much higher chance of doing that than most other people, because he just started out and he provided value to me right away. And I think that's what more people need to do. Yeah, so I'll share I'll share a quick story and then I'll I'll get to my my next question, which is actually one that I'm I really want to ask you. Um, the there's a story, there's a real estate developer that I, I'm friendly with who's got I don't know how many billions of real estate at this point, but there was a big retailer um, that wasn't yet in a particular market, a particular country. I don't want to say the name uh, just in case this isn't public. And what he started doing was he started to purchase land, buy up land that he thought would be great for this retailer to be at. And he did this back in the 90s. And he started buying these plots of land, you know, massive 100,000 or 200,000 uh, square foot plots of land. And he had, I think, like nine or 10 of them acquired and ready and zoned. And only at that point did he go to the retailer and say, hey, when you guys are considering entering this market, I've got your first 10 stores because I've got the land. And he knew that A, there's really no downside because he's buying land if it's, you know, he can unload it at some point in the future if it never works out, no problem. But the best case scenario, which actually played out, was I've already got your development plan laid out. Like all you got to do is partner with me and I've got your. And so every other developer, every other partner in this country was just like, okay, well, we can't, we don't have 10 plots ready for you to go. And so he got this business and turned that into a, that single client into a multi billion dollar um, a client. So it's interesting to see the ways you could hack your way in. In and do it in a way that's honest. You're not trying to fool anybody. You're trying to provide huge value up front that makes it hard for someone to say no. Yeah, exactly. And and frankly, that's how you know my that's what this was for me. Frankly, it was um, I felt like I could do well in the media space, and um, but I had had a different career, you know. And um, luckily, I have been able to get uh, jobs and was able to co-found a company that's done very well in the media space. Because I had this podcast, uh, How to Take Over the World. And so I was able to like showcase, you know, like, oh, I want this, I want to work with this brand. Let me just put an ad read in for them for free. And then I can send them the episode and say, what did you think of this ad read? Would you guys want to do an actual uh, sponsorship deal? And someone got back to me and said, yeah, sounds lovely, you know, <laughs> and uh, that was my first ad deal. So um, going out and, and creating first opens up a lot of opportunities. 
So have you had any like I'm, I'm sure you get you, your shows become very big. What 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 is it right now? Like what what how, how are you charting today? I'm like stable in the top 25 history podcasts, and then I keep breaking into the top 10, but don't stay there. And it's about 30,000 listeners per episode right now. Unbelievable. So have you gotten any, I mean, fan mail requests, crazy offers? Are people reaching out to you? And what, what, what stands out there? Yeah. Um, I think uh, the thing I expected was the volume, was the amount of people who reach out to me. And it's been kind of what I've expected, frankly. What I haven't expected is the quality of people who reach out to me is when like literal billionaires are messaging, are DMing me on Twitter and are like, Hey, I love your show. It like really inspires me. And, um, so that has, uh, that has really surprised me. That's pretty cool. So you're, you're inspiring even people who are already at the top of their game. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, you know, it makes me nervous. I kind of want to be like, Oh, maybe you should go like listen to Malcolm Gladwell. Like he actually knows what he's talking about. Um, <laughs> but you know, if, if yes, yes. Um, apparently people um even at the the top of their game at the, at the top of their industries find it find it valuable yeah so all the folks you've looked at and i'm sure there's lots of others that you haven't uh, done podcast episodes on one thing i always wonder and i've actually asked this to someone who is uh really really successful and um i'll i'll tell you what what his answer was in a second but i'm going to ask you first People who have had major success, let's say over the last... I don't want to go back to ancient times. Let's say the last 100 years. Do you think if you took all their money away and gave them 30 years of their life back, could they do it again? Well, so the first thing I think of is the Vanderbilt quote where uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt basically says that. <laughs> he basically says, you, you could take away all my money right now and I would just have it back in... I don't remember the time frame he says. I, I want to say five years. Um, so, so that comes to mind first of like... But, but I think that's true for some of them and not for others, if that makes sense. Like, I think there are people who... who you, know, you, can't, you can't overgeneralize with this. Like Steve Jobs you just know is that type of personality who just would have rather died than not been at the top of his industry. And so like, could you take away everything that Steve Jobs did and uh, could he have rebuilt it? Yeah, actually people did. Like he got fired from Apple and then he built up Next and then Next wasn't doing so hot and he had to start from the ground up again with Apple and like take Apple from a company that was failing the second time to the most valuable company in the world. So like clearly he could, but I think if you look at someone like Vladimir Putin or someone like Walt Disney, they took advantage of that one opportunity they had, and I'm not sure they could have done it a second time. Timing makes a big difference. So I would say the the thing that I look at because I, I've analyzed people, you know, on the Forbes 500, let's say, and you say, okay, well that person is a billionaire, but they're a billionaire because they did this one thing at a time when that one thing was relevant. And if they tried today, if they had a whole other skill that they were great at, 
then fine, maybe they'd have a chance. But but getting to that level is pretty is pretty tough. But then you know, certain folks you look at, you know, like the most generic example is like someone who made a lot of money in real estate. If you made a lot of money in real estate in 1986, you could probably make a lot of money in real estate in 2018. Or it, it doesn't really. It's sort of a timeless business. Um, but yeah, to your point. So the, the this guy who he's not quite on the Forbes list, but he's he's close. He said if you took half the people off the Forbes list. Give them ten years, they'll be back on. You know that, that that that's sort of I think the mentality of the folks who are at the top, although maybe they're a little biased. Um, but the the one other thought I'll share, and I'd, I'd love your take on this, is you know I kind of look at success as as a bit of a of a tower. And so you think about getting from let's say zero to a million, and I think literally anybody with half decent intelligence can go from zero to a million. Then you start to think, okay, one to five, you know, five to ten, ten to twenty. I think there's a certain point where people who are determined can get back to that level, you know, 10, 20 million dollars. But I think as you get higher in that stack, 50 million, 100, you know, 300, 500 million, the the problem with saying that someone could get there again is that there are certain circumstances and I'm talking about public markets and there's appetite and this and that that are so out of your control. If you took Mark Cuban and said, "Okay, well, you know, he got rich off broadcast.com and because the stock of the company that acquired him Yahoo was high and he happened to sell it early, could Cuban get to billionaire status again today? I'm sure he'd make 20, 30 million, but billionaire or anything like centimillionaire is sort of Really, I don't know. A bit flash in the pan. Do you do you see that, or do you think that there is a formula? I basically, I think that's exactly right. Like you can just grind your way to a certain level of success, um, but but you can't necessarily grind your way to uh, to that that top level of success. When it comes to wealth specifically, I think that's exactly right. Like anyone can grind their way to. 5 million, 10 million, I think like, well, well, any, any halfway smart person, right. I should say. Um, but, but like, I think somewhere between around 20 is that cutoff of like, uh, okay, <laughs> now like you have to be built a little bit different. And, uh, and also then once you get beyond that, so I think the first cutoff is okay. You need to have some actual specific skills, not just like a generically smart person, but you need to have specific skills that other people just don't have. And then, yes, once you start getting into the centimillionaire, the billionaire, it's you also have to meet the right opportunity at the right time. Yeah, um, it, it's interesting that uh, that you can, as you said, you can grind yourself to certain levels, um, and there are proven ways to get there. You know, you want to get into real estate, you want to have this kind of business. The outcome is pretty predictable, but then getting past those levels requires what I call uh, leveling up. And so that's actually another question I wanted to ask you if you've seen this theme and how it plays out. So um, this idea of leveling up is sort of like, you know, when you're starting something out, you're a doer, then you're a manager, then you're a bit of a visionary, then you're more of an advisor. And as you get higher and higher in your success, your job has to change. And I think what holds a lot of people back is that they don't change. They, you know, they, you know, they're managing a team of like, you know, 50 people, but they still want to write the marketing plan. And it's like, no, that's like, you can't be doing that. If you are doing that, you're going to hit a ceiling because that's not the role you have to, you have to use. So when you look at folks who have been super successful, are they pretty good at leveling up? And are there any that you think maybe hit a ceiling because they didn't, because they wanted to keep their hands in, 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 in all the dirty work? 
Yes. Uh, so I think there are there are two sides of what you're saying, though. The first is you're right. You can't stay in all the minutia that you did when you were starting out if you want to scale yourself, essentially. The other problem I see people make, though, is that they think that they are these natural leaders. And so they want to skip the first step. They want to move beyond having to do the dirty work, right? So I will never forget my first job, management consulting. I'm on this big project with this big company. And I'm, uh, I'm down in the trenches with the, uh, with the other analysts. And the partner comes by and he's like, hey, how's that model looking? And he comes and he looks at it. And he goes, hmm, wouldn't it be better if you do, 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 do? And he just comes in and just in the space of three minutes, like soups up my model and really makes it sing. Uh, this is a guy who was very smart, a background with McKinsey and, and could, could, really, could really do some, some financial modeling. And uh, that was the only modeling I ever saw him do. But I knew it was like right at the beginning of the project, I knew that I could not give him any shoddy work from then on out, right? Of just like, okay. And I think that's the right mix of like, you need to get out of it. You cannot be doing the modeling yourself. You need to learn how to scale yourself, how to scale your thought. You need to learn to lead. And that's the most essential element in any great endeavor is leadership. But at the same time, the people that you're leading need to know that you do understand the details and that you could get down and do that job if you needed to, and that you've done it in the past. So true. Um, do you think the people who, let's go back to, you know, the Alexander the Greats and the Julius Caesars and, and, and even the Rothschilds a few hundred years ago, do you think folks like that, personalities like that are the same people who are at the top of their game today? Or do you think every few years, few hundred years, or even few decades, these principles change? No, I think the personalities differ by domain. Uh, in other words, what it takes to be a great general is different than what it takes to be a Thomas Edison versus what it takes to be a great artist, let's say, like a Michelangelo. So they differ by domain, but I don't think they differ that much across time. And I, so, for example, you know, I'm reading about Alexander the Great one day, and there's just this like one small comment about the, the value of the contract to move. Uh, their armor and equipment from Anatolia to Iraq or whatever it was. And it just like brought home to me like, oh my gosh. Yeah. He had contracts with contractors who moved his stuff and he probably had a member of his staff and he had a chief of staff for his staff. And like, he probably had a reporting structure and it just realized like, oh, it's not as different as I thought it was, you know, like, uh, yeah, he was actually out fighting battles. So that is very different. But at the same time, like, he was dealing with negotiating contracts to, for supply chain to move the resources that he needed to supply his army. And that's like probably a lot of what he worried about day to day. So I don't think they change as much over time as we probably think they do. I think it was the Alexander the Great story that, uh, that you told where in, in peace times, there wasn't excitement, there wasn't, you know, there wasn't conquest. And so, and I think it can be relayed to the politicians of today, the CEOs, the entrepreneurs of today, you have peacetime and you have wartime. And 
the stuff that happens during peacetime is like, you know, you're talking to, to delegates and you're having conversations with ambassadors and you're having state dinners um, and you're doing that sort of stuff versus wartime where, as you said, you're out on the bat- battlefield, you're fighting or you're in the boardroom fighting or you're going through some M&A or you're trying to raise funding. Do you think folks that are good peacetime can also be good wartime, vice versa? Or do you think these are two different personalities? Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, the most famous example was, um, was Napoleon who like it was said, um, he, he could win a war, but he couldn't keep it. And it's, it, and he kind of, and I, I think there's a danger there of, there are certain personalities that love conflict. And so they're so good in conflict, you know, you get into an argument with them and they just, they live there. They're so sharp. They're, they're really good. And so they just keep pushing and eventually, inevitably they push too far. And, uh, so I do think that you can find leaders who are good in peacetime and in war, but, uh, you gotta be careful if you are one of those good wartime leaders that you don't fall in, in too much love with it. Um, or else, uh, you can keep pushing too, too far create conflict where there, where there is no conflict, where there doesn't need to be conflict. That's exactly right. Are there, are, are there things that you would say to the entrepreneur, the person starting out today, or the person who's leveling up? What are, what are sort of the top three traits that you see or you think people need to work on if they don't have them naturally that will enable them? I mean, nothing's going to give you a, a, you know, a silver bullet, but what are sort of the three things you would say, okay, if you're, if you're going to be an all-timer, if you're going to be a GOAT, here's what you really need to be good at. Yeah. So easy. Okay. I can think of the first two easy. And then I'll think of the third on the fly. The first one easy. I had this moment when I'm reading the biography of Thomas Edison, when he first starts inventing, he goes to work to make money. And then he comes home, he starts inventing until he passes out. He doesn't change. He doesn't shower. People think he smells bad. He barely eats. Um, he looks haggard. His family's worried about him. He even starts selling his possessions in order to fund his habit, in order to fund being able to invent more, buying more wood and electronics and parts that he needs to invent. And I just kind of realized like, oh my gosh, if you substituted inventing with anything else, you would realize clearly this person is an addict. He's addicted to inventing. And, um, and that's one of the things that made him great. And so I think the first thing I would say is you're not going to be able to force your way into greatness. Like if, if, if you don't love doing it, if you don't, and love is almost the wrong word though, is why I make that comparison to addiction. Like you have to be almost compelled to do it. <laughs> like you can't help yourself, but do it. I think addiction is the thing. right word. I think addiction yeah. is what you want to say. And so that's the first thing is find that thing. The second is what you already talked about is like people try and say that, well, Steve Jobs wasn't that important at, um, Apple, it was actually Steve Wozniak because he's the one that invented the Apple too, right? You have the same thing with actually a lot of leaders. So with Napoleon, they will say, oh, it was actually his, his, um, his, his chief of staffs and some of the other great generals that served around him were the truly great ones. And Napoleon was just kind of stealing their shine. And um, with Walt Disney, oh, it was actually up iWorks, his chief animator. And the thing you find, Steve Jobs is a good example, is you 
can actually look. You can look at Apple when Steve Jobs left the first time. So you have Apple with Steve Wozniak, the great technical genius, and without Steve Jobs, the great leader. And then you have it later in the late 90s and in the 2000s, where you have Steve Jobs, the great leader, and without Steve Wozniak, the great technical genius. And what you find, and you have these, these natural comparisons all the time throughout history. And what you always find is that the great leader is more indispensable than the great technical genius. And so you have to figure out leadership. You have to figure out um, how to be able to scale yourself by inspiring others. So uh, that's the second one I would say is doesn't matter what domain you're in. You have to be a great leader if you want to be great. So find your addiction, be a great leader. And then the third thing I would say is um, know exactly what you're trying to achieve. So many people in this world generally know what they want, but don't know exactly what they want. That if you can be that person that knows exactly what you're looking for, it is like a superpower. I can think of a, a number of, of examples of that, but knowing what you want, exactly what you want and asking for it will, will exponentially increase your, your effort. Yeah. Th- think and grow rich. Uh, ask the world what, you know, uh, or put it out there what it is and, and, and the world will, 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 will give it to you. Um, on that first point, uh, I, it reminds me of, an, of, a, of a comparison that I make a lot. So when you talk about be passionate about something, and I like the word addiction, and I think about it like... I asked someone, okay, like, what are you watching right now on TV, on Netflix, on Prime? What, what are you into? Oh, I'm really into Game of Thrones on HBO. Okay, cool. When when HBO puts out a new episode of Game of Thrones, uh, do you have to like force yourself to go and sit down and like you know make the time and like find? They're like, of course not. Like it comes out, I'm there. Like, I don't have to think about it. And it's like okay, so like that feeling that you have about watching that episode of Game of Thrones. That's how you should feel about this mission that you're thinking of, about this company you're building. Like it should almost be a compulsion. Like it's the weekend, it's you know, Saturday morning. I could be out going out for a walk, but I kind of feel like doing this thing. That's the feeling you should have. And not, I mean, almost to the point where you should have to fight yourself to say, no, I got to take a break now. And that's what I find is a common trait. You know, I've seen that in in folks who are successful. I've seen it in in myself, you know, in and in a couple, here's the thing I'll say just on personal experience. There have been two things in my life that I've been super passionate about. All you know, when I was a kid up until my twenties, it was music. I was just obsessed with like playing the piano, becoming the best classical pianist. I would literally go to the library and like read books on music theory. I just that's what I wanted to do. Like, what are you doing? I'm going to the library and reading books on this thing. It never even occurred to me like I am addicted to this as a punishment. You know, my mom would say, "You you can't you can't practice piano today." Like that that was a punishment, right? <laughs> and when I got a little older, it was it was business. It was like literally an obsession with business models and unit economics and like starting things to the point where a buddy of mine just uh, did, you know, he's, he's in, in his forties. He, he did his MBA uh, a bit later in life, went back to school, uh, did his MBA. And he was telling me all about the MBA program and literally the things that he was studying, you know, the exam and stuff. This is stuff that I read for fun. Like I don't, I don't really go to I'm to pay someone to read the story of like Berkshire Hathaway and read every. I've already read all of Buffett's letters. I, you know, I don't have to go to school to do this. This is what I enjoy doing. And when you have that sort of addiction, it becomes much easier to go through the ups and downs. And you know, there's a time to grind. There really is. But if you're grinding with more than like ten to twenty percent of your time, 
you're not going to make it. It's exactly what you said. Like you just need to feel with that 80% of your time that like, I am doing this because this is what I feel addicted to. This is, I would not be doing anything else in the world if I could. Um, and then 10 to 20% of your time as part of that, you're going to have to do some things that are associated with it that you don't love that you have to grind a little bit, but it's just not sustainable. You're never going to become great. If day after day, you are just grinding away at things that you don't love doing, it's just never going to happen for you. 100%. And on the charisma and the leadership and the inspiration piece, the reason that becomes so important is because at a certain point, especially you know, once you're no longer a one-person show, you've got to be able to have the, the... It almost has to leak off of you. like It just kind of flows from your blood so that when people hear you talking about whatever that thing is that you're passionate about, you, it becomes um, contagious. It becomes almost like you know, it's it's viral. It's like, oh, this this person is so passionate about this that that's making me feel excited about it. And I've seen that, as you pointed out, like every major leader. I mean, you pointed out Putin. I, I I've never you know I don't speak Russian. I don't know if you do. So I I don't, I don't know how compelling what he says is. But you know, like I put politics aside. I really enjoy watching Donald Trump speak. I, I disagree with almost everything he says, but it's fun to watch. And and I could understand how if I was maybe within his target demo, I'd be someone who is, you know, compelled to believe him. It's it's one of these things where you have to have a, a contagious type of, of personality and that takes you a lot farther. I'm I'm actually not even sure if you could be a major success without that. I really don't know. Yeah. On the part of Donald Trump, um uh this person is involved in politics, so I won't say who it is, but they are not a fan of uh of the former president. And they had an opportunity to meet him. And they said it took like 10 to 15 seconds to be charmed by him. Like you just, you, they like despite themselves, they couldn't help it. Right. Um, like met him, shook their hand, kind of pulled him off their center of gravity. And then like quickly made a, a, a connection of like what their point of reference was. And then started teasing them about that, like third contact that they all knew. And they said, just like within 15 seconds, this person who I had hated, I now liked, and I didn't want to, but I couldn't help myself. And, um, that is sort of the magic of, of charisma is that people will come to like you despite yourselves, despite themselves. And, um, so I agree 100%. You got to find that, um, that ability to lead. And look, I, I will, because the way we're speaking about charisma is like maybe we frame it too often in this type of very extroverted charisma that you either have or you don't. Um, if you want to look at an example of someone who is charismatic, but in a maybe a more studied way, you look at someone like Elon Musk, right? He doesn't have that like Steve Jobs, like it looks like he was born on a stage and, and was supposed to be up there but he has found a way to um, communicate effectively in a way that, that gets these people so enthusiastic to follow him. 100%. There, there, there's lots of different ways to bring that out. And certainly in the, within the tech leaders, you, know, you look at someone like Bill Gates, you look at Zuckerberg, this, that's a very different type of charisma. I would say it's still charisma, but it's built on something else. Maybe there's a little more of the image that you know. And so when they talk, you're not looking for that rah-rah personality, but you're still magnified or, or there, there, there's, a, 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 there's a magnet effect of, of what they're doing or what they're saying. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think sometimes you need to find those people. Um, some of those leaders are very 
charismatic in one-on-one situations. And so they find that person can be a spokesman for them a little bit and can help amplify that effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, one, one last little anecdote. I heard a story that when Saddam Hussein was captured uh, and he was held for, I don't know, a few weeks, whatever, in a jail cell, the guards that were immediately guarding him, like the three or four soldiers that were outside of his cell, all became friends with him very quickly. I mean, they were they found it very hard to not enjoy his presence. And you know, that's Saddam Hussein in a cell after being captured and taken down from leadership. And people were just like, yeah, he's, he's, he's fun to hang out with. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good story. I need to look into that. I, I believe it from the other things that I've heard about Saddam. Yeah. Well, Ben, this was, this was an, an awesome conversation. Where can people find you? Uh, you can follow me uh, on Twitter, Ben Wilson Tweets. Uh, and if you want to listen to the podcast, it's wherever you get your podcast, How to Take Over the World. Highly recommend it. Thank you so much, man. All right. I appreciate it. Great conversation. Thanks, John. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy episodes like this, make sure you subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And of course, follow me on Twitter at Real John Davis. We'll see you next time. 